The year, 1877. The place, the Pacific Northwest. The Nez Perce people are about to embark on an epic 1,500-mile odyssey to escape the United States Army. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. This is episode three, Fight No More Forever. I am your host, James Hauser, and hope everything's going well for you today. I'm excited that you guys are here because I've got a big story for you. The Nez Perce War of 1877. This was one of America's last big Indian wars, and I think it's one of the most fascinating. And I hope y'all are ready to hear all about it. Couple things I need to say before we get going. First, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13. The language is clean, the content is not. Second, all my sources, the books and articles I use for this episode, will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want to know where I got my information, there you have it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Finally, today, a single disclaimer. There's a lot of debate over what to call the original inhabitants of the United States. Despite some contention that the most correct term is Native American, which was the popular term when I was was growing up, the U.S. Census Bureau reported in 1995 that about 50% of people who identify as indigenous prefer the older term American Indian. Haven't found a great source since then, and since that is a slim majority, that is the term I will use in this episode. So my apologies in advance to anyone who is offended by this term for any reason. With that being said, let's get into it. Our tale today begins with a ghost story. In 1974, in a remote corner of Montana, Local hikers from the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation encountered a strange apparition. Near a place called the Bear's Paw, a few of the locals reported hearing gunshots, crying children, and screaming horses. They knew the history of the place. American Indians are especially good at remembering their history. And knew who needed to know about these phenomena. So the Assiniboine and the Gravant tribes put in a call to another reservation 500 miles away. The Nez Perce Reservation responded eagerly to the news of the apparitions near Bear Paw Mountain, and the tribes began planning a ceremony. They gathered there in 1977, 100 years after the most important event in their history, for it was at the Bear's Paw on October 5, 1877, that Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce formally surrendered to the United States Army. It was this memory that had to be honored, acknowledged, and laid to rest, After more than 300 Nez Perce gathered at the Bear Paw battlefield to pay homage to their ancestors, the supernatural occurrences were reported no more. But there were other spirits to lay to rest. Every year since 1977, 
A group of the Nez Perce have retraced the 1,500-mile path of their ancestors, a path that stretches across the Rocky Mountains and the Great Plains in five states, a path that stands a good chance of being the most epic journey in American history. The distance is greater than that from New York to Topeka, Kansas. Only a few ever managed to find their way home, and even fewer managed to tell their stories. Today, we'll be talking about the Nez Perce War of 1877, one of the last great Indian wars. We're going to talk about the Nez Perce people and their history. We're going to talk about why this war happened and whether it even had to happen. We're going to follow the Nez Perce across much of a continent, and we're going to follow the United States Army in pursuit. We're going to talk about the men, including Indians on both sides, who fought in this tragic war. We're going to talk about how mythology and propaganda have shaped the conflict ever since. Finally, of course, I'll tell you why it's important. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic story, there will be breaks. When I stop talking and the music turns up, it's time to pause, grab a snack, feed the cat, do the thing you need to do. So, without further ado, grab your Stetson or your Tomahawk, and let's go on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? We're going to start in the Pacific Northwest, but we're not going to stay there. For anyone who knew the history between the Nez Perce people and the United States, it would seem like there was no reason that these two peoples, these two civilizations, should ever end up at war. Until the first shots were fired in 1877, the Nez Perce had always had a reputation as one of the friendliest and most welcoming tribes in the whole Pacific Northwest. They never made an aggressive move towards American settlements before those settlements started to encroach on their territory, and they weren't really warlike people. The Nez Perce did engage in wars with neighboring peoples like the Blackfoot and Shoshone. Almost every Indian tribe did, but their way of life did not revolve around conflict or confrontation. They were a very typical semi-nomadic tribe following hunter-gatherer patterns of living in their Rocky Mountain homeland. This is about where the states, modern states of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho all intersect. That was the heart of Nez Perce country. And this bountiful land provided everything they needed for their way of life. But the first big change to these old ways came in the early 18th century, when the Nez Perce obtained horses, and horses changed everything. Because now the Nez Perce could expand their territory. They could move a lot quicker over terrain. They could even cross the Bitterroot Mountains to hunt buffalo on the Great Plains. The Nez Perce, when they received horses, basically became some of the best riders and horse breeders in the world. They were even responsible for developing the Appaloosa breed, named after the Palouse River in the heart of their lands. That's the big thing for the story, by the way. The Nez Perce and horses just go together. By the time our story begins, they couldn't survive without them. They had no idea how to. But the Nez Perce got off on the best foot possible when they met their first white men. A couple of names you might remember from high school history. In September 1805, 
the starving, exhausted expedition of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark crossed the bitter roots into Nez Perce country. The Nez Perce ended up providing the explorers with food and shelter on their way to and back from the Pacific Ocean. Lewis and Clark got along well with the Nez Perce. Huh, very well in the case of William Clark because he fathered a son with one of the native women. But the white man was already beginning to impose his ways on the Nez Perce, and their freaking names were the first casualty of this relationship. The Nez Perce called themselves the Nimipu, or the real people. In the grand tradition of white people mispronouncing, mistranslating, or straight making up Indian names, uh, hint, the Blackfoot did not call themselves the Blackfoot, Lewis and Clark called the tribe the Nez Perce, which is French for pierced nose. Now, the Nimipu didn't even pierce their noses, so the name is completely wrong on just a general level, but nicknames have a way of sticking. American history has known them as the Nez Perce, and the record is so overwhelming, their reservation is named that, all the histories are named that, that I basically have to call them that. So, sorry, Nimipu. For the next few decades, the Nez Perce had limited contact with the white man. Fur trappers and traders began to trickle in, and they brought some new cool new toys like muskets, so that was nice. In 1836, the missionaries began to arrive, Christian missionaries eager to spread the word of God, but they were mostly harmless. It was even easy to ignore the first few settlers coming up the Oregon Trail, since there were only a handful and the trail ran south of the Nez Perce territory, didn't even go through their country. To top it off, ever since the hospitality they had shown to Lewis and Clark, the Nez Perce had had good relations with the United States government. In 1847, the nearby Cayuse tribe went to war with the United States, but the Nez Perce stayed out of the conflict. They didn't want to mess up their good relationship with Uncle Sam. But it did affect them indirectly, because the federal government saw the Cayuse War as a warning sign. Washington felt that it needed to impose order on the Indians of the Northwest. In May 1855, when the Cayuse War was finally over, the federal government forced the Pacific Northwest Indians to sign a bunch of treaties. These treaties were supposed to establish a hard set of borders between areas of white settlement and Indian lands. The Treaty of 1855 promised the Nez Perce that they could keep almost all of their homeland. No white settlers would be allowed on Nez Perce land without the permission of the tribe. Sounds good, right? Sounds awesome. Well, yeah, but if you paid attention in history class, you know what's coming. With all this new territory opened by the new treaty, lots more pioneers began to come up the Oregon Trail. By 1860, just before the Civil War, over 60,000 American settlers bordered the Nez Perce territory which was only inhabited by 3,000 Indians. You know, the Nez Perce are looking at all these white people coming in. Uh, that's, that's, that's all right. That's cool. The Nez Perce reservation had become an island in a sea of white settlements everywhere. They've been pretty lucky so far. The Oregon Trail had passed them by, and Nez Perce country was in a remote, unappealing corner of the Rocky Mountains. It was, it was off the beaten path, but that was about to change. In October 1860, a few prospectors that had snuck onto the Nez Perce territory struck gold. It is almost always a good thing when someone finds gold on your land. Unless you are an American Indian tribe, because that means trouble. 
With very few exceptions, almost every major Indian conflict in the West was started by white settlers exploiting a gold rush. Indians in California during the 1848 gold rush, uh, the Apaches in Arizona in 1863, the Sioux in South Dakota in 1868-1876, all of them could have told the Nez Perce what came next, because gold drove American settlers nuts. The rush was on. Soon thousands of prospectors were streaming in from all over the West, buying tools and wagons and racing for Idaho. Boom towns sprang up on Nez Perce land, including modern Lewiston and Elk City, Idaho. It was just a flood of gold-hungry invaders. Now, the gold rush was absolutely illegal. It violated the 1855 treaty, but the stampede was too big for the feds to stop, and after a certain point, they didn't even try. By the time the gold rush had gotten into full swing, the Civil War had begun and the United States had uh, new problems, higher priority Confederate problems. Protecting some Indians out in Idaho was at the bottom of the U.S. Army's priorities. Federal agents ordered prospectors to stay away, but they were yelling into the void. The Nez Perce were, understandably, pissed about the illegal invasion and the federal government's failure to stop it, and they began to clash with the prospectors, who turned right around and demanded that the army protect them. United States public opinion, when it cared, was in favor of the Nez Perce. The Indian agents, the army, senators in Congress, everyone was on the side of the Nez Perce, and they came to one conclusion. The Indians would have to go. Yep, whenever white settlers came into conflict with American Indians, even when the Indians were in the right, the settlers won, every time. The Indians could do everything right, follow every letter of the treaty, and still lose their land when the whites wanted it bad enough. Even the Nez Perce, who had been the friendliest tribe in the world, weren't immune to this. Even when the government admitted they had screwed up, they never really worked very hard to fix the situation. Sucks about your land, guys, but you're gonna have to give it up. It's not right, it's not fair, but that's the way it is. Even though you followed the rules, the prospectors didn't, and that means you have to go. It's crazy, isn't it? Some high-level cognitive dissonance going on here. The United States government and people cried about how badly the Nez Perce had been treated, but still insisted that they give up their land. Why? If they were just going to take the Nez Perce land anyway, why did they moan about how bad it all was? Actually, you know what? Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to it. So in 1863, as the Gettysburg Campaign was beginning on the other side of the continent, this is literally as Gettysburg is happening, federal agents brought Nez Perce band leaders to a conference to create a new treaty. They had handpicked one of the more agreeable chiefs, a Christian Nez Perce named Lawyer, then declared him the leader of the Nez Perce and tried to negotiate terms with him that would apply to all the Nez Perce. But here's the thing. The Nez Perce had no chief. They never had. They lived in small bands and villages and acknowledged no higher authority. These bands would have chiefs, but by our standards, no one was really in charge. Nez Perce society was extremely collectivized and communal. Authority for a Nez Perce chief was based on persuasion and respect, not force. A chief could make a decision, but he could not force a single person to follow it. And leadership could be situational. The Nez Perce might have one leader for diplomacy, one leader for war, one leader for religion, 
the white Americans did not understand this society, and the Nez Perce did not understand the hierarchy of the United States. This difference in how American and Nez Perce societies were organized caused multiple miscommunications, and I'll point them out throughout this episode. So the Nez Perce chiefs rejected the idea that if one of them signed a treaty, it applied to all of them, and this led to a division in the tribe. Most of the northern Nez Perce, who got to keep their land under the new treaty, ended up signing it. The southern, more traditional Nez Perce, who would have to give up all their land, refused to sign anything and ended up boycotting the conference. This faction became known as the Non-Treaty Nez Perce. They called the 1863 treaty the Steel Treaty and refused to recognize it. The 1863 treaty confiscated 7 million acres, or almost 90% of the original Nez Perce territory, and just handed it out to white settlers. While a majority of Nez Perce still lived on the reservation, a significant minority, less than a thousand, were outside of it. They were literally off the reservation. That's where the phrase comes from, after all. And they refused to go onto the reservation. These non-treaty Nez Perce organized themselves into about five bands, most of whose leaders are about to be major characters in this story. I hate to be that guy, I hate to be that white dude, but I cannot pronounce most of the Nez Perce names in their original language. I'm sorry. I wish I could. I'll use the English given names most of the time, just so you don't have to hear me sounding like my mouth is full of marbles. The five non-treaty Nez Perce leaders were Looking Glass, Red Echo, White Bird, Tehulhuzot, and Old Joseph, who led the largest band and was the most respected. Less than a thousand non-treaty Nez Perce remained outside the system. There were so few of them, and the Nez Perce had always been so peaceful, that the United States government felt they could just leave them alone for now. But as white settlement continued to pour into Idaho, some of the older chiefs saw the writing on the wall. As Old Joseph lay on his deathbed in August 1871, he spoke to his son and namesake, Young Joseph, later known as Chief Joseph, always remembered what his father told him as he lay dying. When I am gone, think of your country. You are the chief of these people. They look to you to guide them. Always remember that your father never sold his country. You must stop your ears whenever you are asked to sign a treaty selling your home. A few years more and white men will be all around you. They have their eyes on this land. My son, never forget my dying words. This country holds your father's body. Never sell the bones of your father and your mother. Chief Joseph, 31 years old, knew that soon he would have to help make decisions that decided the fate of the Nez Perce people. Joseph was young for a chief, and for this reason, his words did not carry the same influence as his father's. He was diplomatic, charismatic, and canny, an excellent leader, but not really a warrior. But he would have to step up because the crisis was coming. Over the years, the situation became more tense in Nez Perce country, and clashes between individual Americans and Indians became more common. On June 22, 1876, for instance, an American settler murdered a Nez Perce Indian during an argument. The Nez Perce demanded that the army punish the murder, but when the army failed to pursue the matter, the Indians took matters into their own hands. Olocot, Joseph's more aggressive younger brother, issued an ultimatum 
that the murderers had to be handed over and that the settlers had to leave Nez Perce territory or face war. The federal government finally decided enough was enough. The non-treaty Nez Perce would have to get with the program. Who was going to make them? Well, it would have to be the army. And the army was, was represented by General Oliver Otis Howard. General Howard, like many army officers of his time, had served in the Union Army during the Civil War. He had lost an arm at the Battle of Seven Pines in 1862, which caused the Nez Perce to refer to him as the One-Armed War Chief. But Howard was more noteworthy for his deep evangelical faith than for his military ability. His Civil War record was uh, mediocre at best, including some dramatic failures at Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, and his career after the war wasn't much more impressive. Howard was particularly bad at Indian diplomacy and Indian warfare. Fighting and dealing with Indians was just a whole different world from fighting the Confederates. He was also just straight up bad at, um, geography? Yeah, really. He was always getting turned around. You'll hear me say this again. You can't spell lost without Oliver Otis Howard. General Howard had a lot of sympathy for the non-treaty Nez Perce, and he understood their frustration, but this did not stop him from enforcing government policy. On November 13, 1876, Howard called the non-treaty leaders in for a conference. He told them that they were bound by the 1863 treaty, even though they hadn't signed it, and for their own protection, they would have to move on to the reservation. Joseph, who spoke for the group, said, uh, no. Howard was surprised, because he didn't expect them to just say no, and he didn't have enough troops on hand to make them. So for the next six months, Howard sat on his hands and tried to figure out what to do. Finally, after talking with Washington for a while, he decided to try again. He had his second meeting with the Nez Perce on May 4th, 1877. This time, instead of the diplomatic, careful Joseph, the frustrated chiefs decided to push things up a notch, and they selected the warlike Tehulhulzot as their spokesman. They wanted to show they weren't going to be pushed around. But this was a mistake, because Tehulhulzot's angry gestures and blunt insults just pissed Howard off and killed any chance of negotiation. When Howard said that he was just following orders, Tehulhulzot was confused. Here's what he said. Howard, I understand you to say you have instructions from Washington to move all the Nez Perce Nation to the reserve. You are always talking about Washington. I would like to know who Washington is. Is he a chief, or a common man, or a house, or a place? Every time you have counsel, you speak of Washington. Leave Mr. Washington, that is, if he is a man, alone. He has no sense. He does not know anything about our country. He was never here. Now, based on this, it's easy to assume that the Nez Perce chief was being sarcastic, but it's entirely possible that he legitimately didn't understand. The Nez Perce just had a hard time understanding the hierarchical structure of the American government. We'll come back to that. That's going to be a recurring theme as well. Finally, Howard lost his temper. He yelled, You will come on the reservation within the time I tell you. If not, soldiers will put you there or shoot you down. He had Tehulhulzot thrown in jail, which shocked the other chiefs. When they resumed the conference, the intimidated Nez Perce finally agreed to move on to the reservation. 
Then Howard told them that they only had 30 days to comply. 30 days to uproot their entire people, to leave their homes and their way of life? 30 days? But what choice did they have? It would be the reservation or war. General Howard had made that very clear. The Nez Perce chiefs left the conference to round up their people and bring them onto the reservation. Howard was just pleased as punch with the way things had turned out. He believed that he had avoided a crisis, but in reality, he could not have handled things worse. Howard had made the tiny mistake of delivering an ultimatum without having enough troops on hand to back it up. He had insulted and humiliated all the chiefs, showing weapons, threatening war, and imprisoning negotiators at what was supposed to be a peace council was a massive faux pas in Nez Perce culture. Yeah, technically any culture if you think about it. So the Nez Perce chiefs went back to their camps, bitter, angry, and resentful. And this mood spread to their people. So even as they packed up and prepared to leave their ancestral homelands forever, some of the Nez Perce warriors started thinking. They had tried peace and good faith for 70 years, ever since Lewis and Clark had shown up on their doorstep, and this was what they had gotten for it. Maybe it was time to try something else. Maybe it was time to think about war. So real quick, before we get into it, what else is going on in 1877, the year of the Nez Perce War? This is about a decade after the American Civil War. Ulysses S. Grant just finished his second term as president, and Reconstruction is considered to have ended this year. Alexander Graham Bell establishes the first public telephone service in 1877. Tchaikovsky's ballet Swan Lake debuts in 1877. Anna Sewell publishes the novel Black Beauty. Hope all that helps just to place you in time. And now back to our story. We left the Nez Perce, bitter and angry over Howard's uncompromising demands that they surrender their territory. In June 1877, almost all the non-treaty bands gathered near Tolo Lake in Idaho and prepared to move onto the reservation. The atmosphere was bitter, and some of the Nez Perce turned to alcohol to cope with the shame and humiliation of being forced to leave the lands of their fathers. With the younger warriors drunk on anger and cheap booze, Joseph and the other chiefs began to lose control. One warrior named Shore Crossing broke the tension. His father had been killed by a white man some years back, and he decided that now was the time to get revenge. He and two of his friends rode off from the camp and looked for the murderer. When they didn't find him, they killed four other white men who were known for treating Indians like crap. I guess when you get to murdering, you don't go home empty. When Shore Crossing and his friends got back and told everyone what they had done, they got two reactions. Most of the Nez Perce were shocked and horrified, but a few decided to follow Shore Crossing's lead. The result was a two-day rampage by about 15 warriors of White Bird's band. They attacked local settlements, burned houses, raped four women, and killed 14 settlers, including two babies. This 
was one of the worst and most tragic incidents of Indian violence in the history of the West. In the aftermath of these massacres, the Nez Perce, even if like most of them they didn't take part in the raids at all, faced a decision. What would they do next? Could they still live in peace with the whites after what had just happened? Would General Howard accept that most Nez Perce hadn't committed these crimes, or would he seek to punish the whole tribe? Did these massacres make war unavoidable? The chiefs were divided. Looking Glass, for his part, wanted no part of this foolishness. He and his band took off for the reservation immediately to distance themselves from the troublemakers. But Joseph and Whitebird believed that the massacres had put their people in enormous danger. Instead of following Looking Glass to the reservation, most of the Nez Perce bands turned south and set up camp in the easily defensible Whitebird Canyon. They still hoped to avoid a war, but they were also prepared to defend themselves. General Howard wanted to avoid violence too. When he learned about the massacres, his response was not to go charging off to war. After all, he didn't want the Nez Perce dead. Contrary to popular belief, some popular belief, the army never wanted to wipe out the Indians. He just wanted them on the reservation. But to many American Indians, not just the Nez Perce, the reservation was just a slow death. It removed them from their land, which the Nez Perce believed they had a special connection with. It ripped them away from the traditions and cultures that had given their life meaning. It would even take their children to be raised in mission schools and converted into good American citizens. The reservation seemed like a living nightmare, and this was what had triggered the violent backlash and massacres. General Howard sent Captain Edward Perry with two companies of the 1st U.S. Cavalry to protect the local settlers from more raids. But when Captain Perry arrived, the settlers demanded that he take action against the Indians. Captain Perry, violating his orders, allowed the angry civilians to goad him into action, and he decided to ride off and confront the Nez Perce. That was often the way these things played out in tense confrontations between the settlers and the Indians. It was rarely the army or the Indians that caused trouble. It was usually the settler civilians who ended up violating treaties or stealing horses or causing trouble, then begged the army to come save them from their own bad choices. In this case, of course, it was the Indians who had perpetrated the massacre, but Perry still jumped the gun. Perry had about 100 cavalry troopers, three Indian scouts, and 11 armed civilian volunteers, and they covered 17 miles overnight. They arrived at the entrance to Whitebird Canyon at 4 in the morning on June 17, 1877. But the Nez Perce had spotted the cavalry long before the cavalry spotted them. The cautious Indians, led by Joseph's brother Olocott, arranged their warriors in a defensive formation. A lot of the Nez Perce warriors were still hungover or wasted from their binge drinking the night before, so they had less than a hundred warriors ready for combat. It was still possible, even now, to avoid an open conflict. But when the Nez Perce sent out a few riders to negotiate with the Americans, one of the nervous civilian volunteers fired a shot at them. Awesome job, dude. Great job. Great contribution. Soon, rifle shots from both Indians and the American troopers were echoing off the sides of the canyon. There was no going back now. The Nez Perce War had begun. The Americans had basically lost the battle before it even began. 
Captain Perry's troops were hungry and exhausted after two nights of riding with no sleep, and the Nez Perce were well-rested, well-fed, and on familiar territory. Those that weren't still sleeping off their binge drinking, that is. On top of that, your average Nez Perce was just a better fighter than your average cavalry trooper. The Nez Perce warriors flanked the Americans on both sides, and their accurate rifle fire brought down one man after another. When the troopers realized that they were about to be surrounded, they panicked and started to retreat. Olocott and his mounted warriors pursued, and the cavalry's retreat turned into a rout. The Battle of Whitebird Canyon lasted less than an hour, and it cost Perry's detachment 34 dead, which is high. That was one-third of their force, while the Nez Perce only lost three lightly wounded and no dead. It was a stunning victory for the Nez Perce, but their celebration was short because the tiny Indian tribe was now at war with the United States of America. But you know what? Let's take a minute here. Now that the war started, we have an important question to answer. Who are these people? How do they fight? And why do they fight this way? And maybe at this point you're saying, James, come on, man. Your podcast is called Unknown Soldiers, and these guys ain't unknown. And in one sense... You're right. Name a more iconic duo than the U.S. Cavalryman and the Indian Warrior. You can't, right? But I would bet good money that most people's mental image of these two foes is flat out wrong, built on TV shows and video games and movies. You ever seen those old westerns where when someone gets shot, their hands fly up in the air and they just fall over, there's no blood anywhere, they go, ah... Well, that's probably about as accurate as most people's ideas of the American Indian Wars. To describe the United States Army in the 1870s, we need to decouple a bit from our modern perception of the Army. The Army in 1877 was nothing like the Army today. Far from being one of our most respected institutions, the Army of the late 19th century was the red-headed stepchild of the nation. As soon as the Civil War was over, the army had been stripped to the bone, and most soldiers didn't stick around. After all, who goes through the Civil War and says, yep, I want to do this for the rest of my life? In 1877, the army had about 24,501 officers and men on active duty, and 85% of those were out west. That is not a lot of people. That's about 20,000 men to cover everything from California to St. Louis. That is less people than the Union Army lost at Gettysburg. Plus, the soldier's life was miserable. The Army's men were stationed in isolated, depressing frontier forts, sometimes for years. The food sucked, the equipment sucked, the pay sucked, the training sucked, discipline was harsh. Base pay for a private was $16 a month, and Congress, being Congress, cut that down to $13 in 1871 because Congress said screw those guys. Soldiers coped with the boredom and poor conditions by, what else? Gambling, whoring, drinking massive amounts of alcohol. STDs, alcoholism, and suicide were common problems in the army out west. Yeah, okay, fair point, you say. That does sound a little like the modern army, sure. But back then it was much, 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 much worse. Nobody thanked you for your service in 1877. The army was what you did when you could literally do nothing else which was why many of these troops were immigrants. Immigrants always do the work good, clean Americans don't want to do. Almost half the soldiers that would fight the Indian Wars were foreigners of one kind or another, 
mostly from Canada, Ireland, or Germany. The last man to see George Custer alive in 1876 was his bugler, Giovanni Martini, who had fought in the Italian Wars of Independence in the 1860s. One officer who fought at Whitebird Canyon, the battle we just talked about, was a survivor of the Charge of the Light Brigade. Dude, what are you doing here? But what did the army think of the Indians? You might be surprised to learn that compared to almost any other American, the average army officer was more likely to have sympathy for the Indians. That was because they spent more time with them than anyone else. They got to know them as people. Many officers, even Howard for instance, hated how badly the civilians in Washington and on the frontier treated the Indians. But despite all these doubts, the army never hesitated to enforce government policy with great brutality to put the Indians in their place. No one went native. There was no dances with wolves phenomenon going on. Army officers' personal feelings about the Indians never got in the way of their mission. Remember that. We'll come back to it. But despite all this, the Frontier Army did its job and usually did it well. Soldiers were tough, careful, and disciplined in combat. With some exceptions, the leadership was pretty good. Howard was an exception, but we'll hear all about that. The Army's main advantages, though, were in firepower and resources. The Army could call on, for instance, artillery and Gatling guns. Now, when I say Gatling guns, don't think of some video game monstrosity or the things that are mounted on modern helicopters. These were hand-cranked, short-range, hopelessly inaccurate proto-machine guns. But you know who didn't have them? Any Indian tribe. But even more important, the army had a reach. They were deep. The 1870s was a transformative period for the United States, with the iron bands of the railroad and the copper wires of the telegraph welding the nation together. The army could use these to transport thousands of troops anywhere it wanted and communicate in a matter of minutes and call on vast amounts of supplies and money when necessary. And the Indians could never do this in their wildest dreams. The army's soldiers might have been tactically inferior to their Indian counterparts, but they had an industrialized, modern nation-state behind them. No matter how many victories the Indians won in battle, they would be ground down by the machine. But the Nez Perce would not go quietly. As the army was learning in June 1877, the Nez Perce were expert riders and marksmen. Since they lived off the land, they traveled light and moved fast, much faster than the army's slow-moving wagon trains. They could cross rivers and climb paths that the bluecoats could not imagine. They were also brilliant small unit fighters, able to make use of any cover and concealment, and turn any terrain to their advantage. But the Nez Perce had a major disadvantage, and it wasn't just their lack of resources. The Nez Perce didn't have a single leader. They made all their decisions by consensus, and changed leaders based on who made the most persuasive argument, and who had the most popular strategy. The Nez Perce would change their key leaders multiple times during the war. Who was in charge during the battle, though? Someone has to be, right? Right? No one. Literally. No one was in charge. There was no discipline, no chain of command, no higher authority. Each Nez Perce warrior made his own decision to fight or stand his ground or attack or run away. 
When the Nez Perce flanked Captain Perry's men at Whitebird Canyon, it had not been some higher commander who ordered them to do so. The chiefs could influence tactics, they, they could suggest tactics, but the warriors made the decision to carry them out on their own initiative. The chiefs could influence, and this had an effect, but all 200 or so of the Nez Perce fighting men basically did whatever they felt like at the moment, and this made it impossible for the chiefs to impose real direction on a battle. The Americans never understood this. For many years, American histories of the Nez Perce War depicted Chief Joseph as the main leader of the Nez Perce, and due to their brilliant resistance, he was propped up as something like an Indian Napoleon, a natural military genius. You'll still see this trend, like even in more recent histories in the 21st century. But the truth is that Joseph never had this authority, and usually had very little to do with the battles at all. He functioned more as a diplomatic and administrative leader. He saw to the camp and the civilians, he took care of them. The main Nez Perce military leader would be Looking Glass, who is acknowledged as their best tactician. But the Nez Perce would change leaders several times during the war depending on whose strategy they were following. My point here? Nez Perce culture and Nez Perce society affected the way they fought their wars. It's almost like studying things beyond weapons and tactics is really important to military history. Who knew, right? The struggle between the Nez Perce and the U.S. Army wouldn't just be a struggle of civilizations. It would be a confrontation between two drastically different ways of war. Speaking of that war, do you remember where we were? The Nez Perce had just kicked Captain Perry's butt at Whitebird Canyon. When Perry's shell-shocked men came limping back, General Howard was shocked by the news. Far from dealing with a handful of renegades, he now had a well-armed and dangerous Indian tribe on his hands. Howard began to gather up a force, and within a week, he had scraped together around 400 men from various scattered outposts. He moved south, hoping to corner the Nez Perce before they could escape. Howard and his men entered Whitebird Canyon on June 27th to discover that the Nez Perce had escaped across the nearby Salmon River. Howard took days to cross the river, only to spend another week roaming around the Idaho countryside trying to find the enemy, while the Nez Perce had just slipped past him and headed back the way the Americans had come. They left Howard wandering around like a lost Roomba behind them, trying to track down the Indians while his supplies ran out and his mules broke their ankles on the steep mountain slopes because you can't spell lost without Oliver Otis Howard, remember? After two weeks of this nonsense, Howard's men were starving, and by the time he figured, finally figured out what was going on, the Nez Perce were long gone. In the meantime, Howard had made another one of those really good decisions he was so good at. Uh, just kidding, it was a bad decision. Looking Glass's band of non-treating Nez Perce had already come onto the reservation. Remember, he's the one that didn't want to be involved with this but Howard was worried that they might join the war. So he ordered some troops to ride over to Looking Glass's camp and arrest him. But these guys screwed up, Looking Glass escaped with his band, and having done everything right and still been attacked, he decided to join the war too. So by trying to keep Looking Glass from joining the war by um, arresting him, Howard had forced Looking Glass to join the war. A for effort, buddy, fantastic job. Meanwhile, 
The main force of Nez Perce under Joseph and Whitebird had been rampaging through Howard's supply depots and rear areas, heading north. When they finally linked up with Looking Glass's faction on July 6th, all the non-treaty Nez Perce were finally together. There were only 750 of them, and of these, only 200 were fighting men. It was them against the United States. Good luck, guys. The Nez Perce made camp near the Clearwater River, and as they tried to figure out what to do next, the Americans closed in. Once again, Howard went tearing after the Nez Perce, and once again he got lost because you can't spell lost without Oliver Otis Howard. The Americans would have walked right past the Nez Perce camp on July 11th, 1877, if one of Howard's officers hadn't turned around and spotted it by accident. Oh, 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 sir, sir, they're over there! Howard prepared to attack, but his blundering had ruined the element of surprise, and the Nez Perce were up for the challenge. The Battle of the Clearwater River would be the largest battle of the Nez Perce War. The Nez Perce warriors reacted quickly and ferociously to Howard's attack, with Tehulhulzot leading a quick counter-strike up the ravine. The Americans, still trying to set up their battle line, reeled under this sudden assault. The Indians made excellent use of cover behind rocks and trees, and even managed to capture part of the American supply train. Olocott, Joseph's brother, led a flanking force up another ravine, and soon Howard's line was bent into the shape of a crescent moon. The hot summer day on that Idaho hillside was ripped apart by gunshots, cannon blasts, and the voices of angry men. One American officer described the Nez Perce tactics. Here's what he said. They ride up behind little elevations, throw themselves from their ponies, fire, and are off like rockets. Lines of them creep and crawl and twist themselves through the grass until within range. They tie grass upon their heads, so that it is hard to tell which bunch of grass does not conceal an Indian with a globe-sided rifle. Howard positioned his Gatling guns in the front lines to try and gain fire superiority, but their inaccurate fire was basically useless at such a long range and in this dense terrain. The Americans were nearly pinned down by the Indians' accurate rifle fire, and many believed that they were in real danger of being overwhelmed. Custer's last stand at the Battle of Little Bighorn had occurred just the previous year, and people felt like history might be repeating itself. By the time night fell, though, the army was still standing, and in the morning the enemy was gone. Overnight, the Nez Perce had packed up their camp and bugged out to the east. The Nez Perce had gotten away again, but they had been forced to leave behind many of their supplies, including food, warm clothing, and teepees. They could not replace their lost resources like the United States could, and this would come back to haunt them as winter approached. The Nez Perce had inflicted heavy casualties on the Americans, and had come very close to destroying Howard's force. But the lack of centralized leadership cost the Nez Perce this chance. Only half the warriors even got into the fight, and no one was able to give the top-down orders that could have resulted in a decisive victory. The Americans had had the worst of the battle, but they held the ground at the end of the battle, and the Nez Perce didn't. The Clearwater demonstrated the superior fighting ability of the Nez Perce, but also demonstrated their ultimate weaknesses.
Once again, the Nez Perce had to decide. What do we do now? Their chiefs disagreed. Whitebird wanted to head north to Canada. Joseph was reluctant to leave their homelands, his father's last wish still echoing in his ears. Looking Glass, though, had a radical idea. He wanted to move up the Lolo Trail over the Bitterroot Mountains to the east, which was the path the Nez Perce had taken for decades on their buffalo hunts. Once over the mountains, the Nez Perce would be safe from the one-armed war chief. Looking Glass got a majority of the tribe on his side, and his was the plan they would follow. On July 16th, the Nez Perce began to ascend the Lolo Trail into modern Montana. They made 15 miles a day over mountainous and difficult terrain with their huge herd of horses and suffering women and children. Among them was an elderly Nez Perce man named Daytime Smoke. He was the son that William Clark had sired on that Nez Perce woman 70 years ago, retracing the steps his father had taken in 1805. Of course, Daytime Smoke had never really known his father, which kind of makes you wonder what he thought about this whole thing. I bet he felt some kind of way, man. I don't know. I don't know how I'd feel. Howard had to stop and resupply his forces before following the Nez Perce. He wasn't that worried since he figured that they'd have to come back. They couldn't abandon their homelands, and when they returned, he would be waiting for them. They wouldn't get past him this time. But Howard was wrong. The Nez Perce had done something no other Indian tribe had willingly done, at least not on such a large scale. They had cut loose from the land they had lived in for centuries, and they had set out on a journey into almost uncharted territory. This entire faction of Nez Perce, a tribe that had always had such an intense personal and religious connection with the land of their ancestors' bones, had cut loose from the only home they had ever known. Howard didn't expect it because no one else had ever done it. The Nez Perce had set out on the most epic journey in American history. They were adrift in a foreign land. By July 30th, Howard had assembled 730 men and finally began to follow the Indians' trail, but this was after a delay of two weeks. The Nez Perce moved much faster in this rough terrain, and they had cut down a bunch of trees to block his path. Howard sent word by telegraph to Montana and Wyoming, and he also got in touch with his ultimate boss, Lieutenant General William T. Sherman, the commanding general of the army. Yes, that Sherman. Now that the Nez Perce had left Idaho, they had gone from being a local problem to being a national problem. The Nez Perce were still on the move. They were able to bypass several pathetic blockades set up by local detachments, and they were soon safely over the mountains into Montana. But at this point, Looking Glass got careless. He believed that they had escaped Howard, and with the locals not willing to pick a fight with the Nez Perce, they were home free. The war was over. Looking Glass led his people to a camping spot called the Big Hole, often used en route to the buffalo hunts. There they established a makeshift village, but set up barely any security or defenses. Why did they do this? Why did the Nez Perce drop their guard at this point? Well, Looking Glass seemed to think that they could just hang out in Montana until Howard gave up the chase. The Nez Perce believed that they were at war only with Howard's men and the settlers in Idaho. They would be surprised to find that people and soldiers in Montana would be hostile as well. 
It made no sense to the Nez Perce that people in two totally different places would follow the same chief. Now let's be clear, the Nez Perce were not stupid. They just had no frame of reference for the massive scale of American society and American government. Remember, for instance, how Tehulhuzot didn't understand what Howard meant when he referred to Washington. The concept of political hierarchy just did not fit into their cultural framework. They didn't understand what they were dealing with. I'm not sure if anyone currently with the non-treaty Nez Perce had ever traveled to an American city or even seen a railroad to begin to understand the full scope of what they were fighting against. This was a band of 750 people, and they didn't have a clear leader. Imagine telling them that 50 million people in the USA were under the authority of the president. These two societies just did not understand one another. Looking Glass was wrong. The Nez Perce were not safe, because at that very moment, Colonel John Gibbon of the 7th U.S. Infantry was approaching their position. Howard's telegrams had reached Montana and put Gibbon on the Nez Perce's trail. Gibbon was also a Gettysburg veteran. It had been his Union division that shattered Pickett's charge on Cemetery Ridge on the third day of Gettysburg. Gibbon had also been the first to discover the remains of Custer and his men at the Little Bighorn last year. But as the 7th Infantry approached the Big Hole, John Gibbon had no idea what he was in for. He would describe the Battle of the Big Hole as the toughest fight of his career. Yes, worse than Gettysburg. In the pre-dawn hours of August 9th, 1877, Gibbon's troops launched a devastating surprise attack on the Nez Perce camp. The Bluecoats almost overran the camp, shooting blindly into the teepees where most of the Indians were still sleeping, killing man, woman, and child without distinction. But several of their officers were killed in the attack, and when the attack lost steam, White Bird and Looking Glass rallied the warriors and threw the Americans out of the camp. It was Joseph, though, that saved the Nez Perce that day. He realized that their Achilles heel wasn't the camp, but the horse herd. Without them, the Nez Perce would be doomed whatever the outcome of the battle. They would be stranded. They would have nowhere to go. Joseph and a few other Indians managed to round up and save the horses during Gibbon's attack. Gibbon's men were driven back out of the camp onto a high hill, where he and his grunts made a desperate stand against the angry warriors, who were attacking them from all sides. At one point, the Nez Perce even set fire to the grass, creating this hellish, smoky, fiery landscape as Nez Perce warrior and U.S. infantrymen fought amongst the smoke and the flames. But once again, the Nez Perce were just stalling for time. As they pinned the Americans down, their women and children got away, and the warriors followed. The Battle of the Big Hole was the bloodiest, fiercest fight of the whole war. Gibbon had been wounded, and the American force had been beaten to a pulp, losing 29 dead and 40 wounded. But the Nez Perce had suffered grievously. Two dozen of their warriors had been killed, including Shore Crossing, whose vengeance quest had started this whole war when he rode out to kill his father's killer. Most of the 70 to 90 dead, though, had been women and children. One Nez Perce warrior named Yellow Wolf remembered the scene. It was not good to see women and children lying dead and wounded, wounded children screaming with pain women and men crying, wailing for their scattered dead. 
the air was heavy with sorrow. I would not want to hear, I would not want to see, ever again. Try as they might, no one would ever forget the slaughter at the big hole. The Nez Perce ran for their lives. They weren't safe in Montana. Where could they go? Looking Glass's prestige as a leader was badly damaged after the big hole, since he had claimed they would be safe there. And he was superseded by an experienced traveler named Poker Joe. Though he wasn't even a chief, Poker Joe knew the trails. His plan was to now seek shelter in south central Montana with the Crow tribe, who had family ties with the Nez Perce. Maybe the Crow would take them in. It looked like the only option they had. I mean, think about how incredible this little convoy is. Out of the 700 or so Nez Perce still on the run, only about 180 by this point are capable of fighting. All the rest are women, children, and elderly, marching and riding as fast and as far as possible every day. This wasn't just a military expedition. This was a small nation, a people, fleeing across mountain and plain and forest. The incredible human endurance and determination the trek requ required are, man, they're beyond description. I don't know what else to say. I don't know how they kept it together, because this nation, this people, moved faster than any of the army forces pursuing them. They would have to keep moving, because the one-armed war chief had reappeared behind them. Howard had finally crossed the Bitterroot Mountains, and after a brief chat with Colonel Gibbon, he was back on the Nez Perce's trail. But they moved faster than he did. The chase continued, with Howard screwing up several opportunities to trap his quarry. Because you can't spell lost without Oliver Otis Howard. By the time the Nez Perce crossed the Bannock Pass back into Idaho on August 13th, they had covered almost 450 miles since leaving Whitebird Canyon. General Howard couldn't seem to catch them, but they couldn't seem to get rid of him. He was like a tin can tied to their bumper. He was noisy and stupid, but always back there, and they couldn't shake him. The Nez Perce chiefs decided to slow him down. On August 20th, Looking Glass and Olocott doubled back and launched a surprise attack on the pursuing Bluecoats. In a weird little running battle called the Camas Meadows, the Nez Perce stole Howard's mule train, led his men into an ambush, and made their escape. Since Howard depended on the mule train for his supplies, this forced him to stop long enough for the Nez Perce to gain some breathing room. Heading east, they slipped into modern Wyoming and into Yellowstone National Park. Ever since the massacre of their women and children at the Big Hole, the Nez Perce were all out of mercy for any white civilians in their path. Luckily, they didn't come across many, but when the Nez Perce entered the newly founded Yellowstone National Park, they killed a few of its very first tourists. There was one tourist whose death would have changed everything. General William T. Sherman was making a tour of Western Army posts and had been camping in Yellowstone. He was alerted to the approach of the Nez Perce and managed to get away with his small escort only a day before they ventured through his campground. Now, wouldn't that have been an interesting alternate history? Sherman as a Nez Perce captive. What the heck would have happened then? But the telegraph wires were still clicking, with a rattled Sherman trying to coordinate his forces and corner the fleeing Indians. This time it was the turn of Colonel Samuel D. Sturgis and his 7th Cavalry, who hoped to hold the Nez Perce in place until Howard came up from behind to surround them. But 
The seventh still hadn't really recovered from getting the crap knocked out of it by the Sioux at Little Bighorn last year, and nobody called Sam Sturgis a genius. In a masterful series of deceptions and maneuvers, the Nez Perce slipped right by the 7th Cavalry, leaving Sturgis and Howard holding the bag yet again. Seriously, this is like the sixth time the Nez Perce has gotten past the army. It's just embarrassing at this point. The Nez Perce had broken out of Yellowstone onto the wide-open buffalo country of Montana's Great Plains. It seemed like no one was able to stop them. A furious General Sherman began to order any and all units to converge on the resilient Nez Perce. Sturgis and Howard continued to trail the Nez Perce column at the speed of syrup, but they were always back there. But the Nez Perce were running out of options. They had finally heard back from the Crow tribe, and the news was not good. Not only did the Crows refuse to take them in, but they were actively assisting the army in hunting them down. The Crows had their reservation, and they had learned to live with it, thank you very much, and they didn't want to do anything that would hurt their relationship with the Americans. Besides, stealing the Nez Perce horses would be extremely lucrative. Poker Joe's strategy had failed. If the Crow would not take them in, where could they go? In this moment of crisis, leadership passed once again to Looking Glass. He proclaimed that they had to escape the United States altogether. They would head north as fast as possible for the international boundary with Canada, which was now their only hope. The Nez Perce marched north through the heart of Montana throughout September 1877, with the 7th Cavalry and the hostile Crow tribe nipping at their heels the whole way. By now they had marched almost a thousand miles in just over three months. Their horses were dying, their people were starving. Winter was approaching, and the buffalo herds that had once covered Montana were almost all gone. They could not shake the army, no matter how many brilliant escapes they pulled off. They had lost so many of their people, at the big hole and along the road, warriors and women and children alike, and now they were in the end game. Howard realized that he could not catch the Nez Perce before they reached Canada, so he phoned a friend. He telegraphed Colonel Nelson A. Miles of the 5th Infantry, stationed in northeast Montana, and asked him to intercept the Nez Perce before they reached the border. Nelson Miles was another Union veteran who had risen fast under General Grant in the last years of the Civil War. Unlike Howard or Gibbon, though, Miles was an immensely talented Indian fighter, full of fire and energy. Within hours, he was moving west at top speed, with 500 mounted infantry and 30 Indian scouts behind him. The Nez Perce, meanwhile, noticed that Howard was nowhere to be seen. They believed they had finally shaken the one-armed war chief. They had finally escaped. Looking Glass, listening to the groans of his women and the crying of his children, decided that the tribe could slow down and gather food before continuing into Canada. Poker Joe was still nervous and disagreed. He said, Looking Glass, you can lead. I am trying to save the people, doing my best to cross into Canada before the soldiers find us. You can take command, but I think we will be caught and killed. But Looking Glass won the support of the tired Nez Perce, and the tribe slowed their pace. This would be a costly mistake. On September 29th, the Nez Perce made camp at Bear Paul Mountain, only 42 miles from the Canadian border. They had no idea of the Blitzkrieg thundering their way. 
Colonel Miles had caught their trail, and on the morning of September 30th, 1877, he and his men came thundering in like a storm of horses and steel. The Nez Perce only had a few minutes of warning before he was on top of them. But if Miles thought this was going to be easy, he had another thing coming. Looking Glass had chosen a good defensive position, and the warriors put out a withering rifle fire from the Bear Paw. But even as they shot down many of their attackers, the Nez Perce had already lost the battle. Miles sent a force behind their camp to scatter the Nez Perce horse herd, and when it was scattered, their only means of escape was gone. Miles, the expert Indian fighter, had identified the Nez Perce's main weakness. Without the horses, they could not all make it to Canada. The chaotic battle at Bear Paw Mountain soon died down. Many women and children had escaped in scattered groups, heading as fast as they could for the Canadian border. Joseph put his teenage daughter on a horse and sent her north, then dashed back through a hail of bullets to rejoin his people atop the Bear's Paw. Led by Whitebird, probably around 200 or so Nez Perce escaped to Canada. The rest of the tribe was trapped on top of Bear Paw Mountain. Both sides had suffered heavily. The soldiers had lost 18 dead, but the Nez Perce had lost 22 warriors, including Tehulhuzat, Poker Joe, and Joseph's brother Olicott, all dead. And now they would never make it to Canada. The siege continued for days as the snow fell and the temperatures dropped. Shots rang out as both Indians and soldiers continued to maneuver for position, but Miles knew that time was on his side. More troops were arriving, and on October 4th, Howard, the one-armed chief himself, finally showed up with a small escort. He had gotten turned around on the way there because you can't spell loss without Oliver Otis Howard. But by the time he had arrived, Looking Glass, the Nez Perce best military leader, had been killed by a sniper. This left Joseph as the last chief of his people. It fell on the shoulders of Joseph, who had never wanted to leave his home, who had never wanted to abandon the grave of his father and mother, to negotiate the surrender of the Nez Perce. On October 5th, 1877, Joseph allegedly sent a message to the Americans that was translated as follows. Tell General Howard I know his heart. I am tired of fighting. Our chiefs are killed. Looking Glass is dead. Tehulhuzot is dead. Olakot is dead. It is cold and we have no blankets. The little children are freezing to death. My people, some of them, have run away to the hills and have no blankets, no food. No one knows where they are, perhaps freezing to death. I want to have time to look for my children and see how many of them I can find. Maybe I shall find them among the dead. Hear me, my chiefs. I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. Did he really say that? Uh, between you and me, probably not. This was a message translated from Nez Perce to a different Indian language and then retranslated to Howard. To top it off, an army officer with delusions of poetic talent was apparently the first one to transcribe Joseph's speech. There is no doubt that he added his own twist. So basically, yeah, someone pretty Joseph's speech up quite a bit. But the speech became famous. So famous that its last line is the title of this episode. And even if it was fake, it really does sum up everything the Nez Perce had suffered. They had passed through five states and fought eight battles. 
They had never counted more than 200 warriors and had never even had a real commander. They had given the federal government no end of headaches and fits and trouble. They had traveled 1,500 miles in four months with the entire U.S. Army after them. And now it was all over. There is not a happy ending to this story, but I think you knew that, didn't you? In the terms of surrender, General Howard and Colonel Miles promised Chief Joseph that his people would be safely returned to their homelands. But General Sherman saw it differently. He considered the Nez Perce to be far too dangerous to be sent home, and he wanted to make an example out of them. Instead of going back to Idaho, Joseph and his 400 surviving followers were forced onto boxcars and sent down to prison camps at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Their existence there was miserable, and it only got worse in July 1878, when they were deported once again to Indian Territory, now known as Oklahoma. There, the government expected them to scratch out a living farming, but the Nez Perce knew nothing about farming, and the land they were given was basically the crappy land no one else wanted. Within the first two years, 150 of the Nez Perce died from disease and exposure. They had been right. Reservation life killed more Nez Perce than the Nez Perce War had. But Chief Joseph truly emerged as the leader of his people during exile. The American public had followed the Nez Perce saga closely through the newspapers, and Joseph emerged from the war as something like a celebrity. Joseph had always been a talented diplomat, if not much of a general, and he used his newfound fame to advance the cause of his people. He made two trips to Washington, D.C. to lobby Congress to let the Nez Perce go home, and even more impressively, he eventually got them to listen. It shouldn't have been that hard to motivate the American people. The Nez Perce passed into the legend of the West almost before the fighting was over. Newspapers at the time, and a surprising amount of history books since, have praised the Nez Perce as some of the greatest warriors in history. Joseph, despite never actually had a military role in the campaign, was described as an Indian Napoleon, a military genius of enormous talent. One of the reasons these myths have lasted so long is that Joseph intentionally played them up to increase his and his people's public image. He didn't want to be a military genius, and his people didn't want to be the world's greatest warriors. All they wanted was to keep their home, or go home. And if that meant encouraging certain misconceptions, so be it. By 1885, after seven years of exile in Indian territory, the Nez Perce were finally allowed to return to the Pacific Northwest reservations. They would never regain their ancestral lands from the Steel Treaty, and they were shunned by many of the Treaty Nez Perce and other Indians. It was a start. It was something. But Joseph was not satisfied. He would never be satisfied until he had regained the Willowa Valley, where the bones of his father lay. But despite his lobbying and pleading, Joseph and his people never got their lands back. Even as Joseph's reputation was one of the highest among all American Indians, mostly based on military feats he had nothing to do with, the ancestral territory of the Nez Perce was lost to him forever. He was allowed to visit the Willowa Valley twice, and he made one trip in 1900 to visit his father's grave. Luckily, it had been carefully maintained by a local farmer, and Joseph wept over the site for a while before leaving the Willowa forever. While he was praised by people like Theodore Roosevelt, and even made friends after the war with Oliver Otis Howard of all people, 
This was small consolation for the bitter loss of the Nez Perce. Chief Joseph died of what was probably a stroke in 1904. His body lies on Colville Indian Reservation in Washington State, a long way from the bones of his father. 100 years after the battle at Bear Paw Mountain, the local reservation Indians heard the sounds of gunshots, horses, and children crying. These were the echoes, maybe, of one of the greatest American journeys and one of the greatest American tragedies. It's almost enough to make you believe in ghosts. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Well, I can tell you one thing. When they finally make a decent movie out of this story, there won't be a dry eye in the theater at the end. The Nez Perce War of 1877 was one of the last great Indian wars, and it basically came out of nowhere. The Nez Perce were among the friendliest Indian tribes in America, and had always honored their treaties with Uncle Sam. But Uncle Sam did not honor those treaties back, and conflict was the result. It did not have to be a shooting conflict, but Howard's poor diplomacy, the violent reaction of some young Nez Perce warriors, and a series of accidents and miscommunications made the war inevitable. The war never needed to be as big as it was, and the fact that the Nez Perce got so far was due on one hand to their amazing endurance and skill, but on the other hand due to the army's poor condition and some bad decisions by its leaders, particularly Howard, who was just an absolute garbage general in every situation in this story. The Nez Perce almost got away to Canada and eluded every army attempt to stop or block them until the very end. It was a very close thing. It's honestly amazing they got as far as they did. What ended up fatally weakening the Nez Perce was their disunited leadership. If you look at their path on a map, you can see how they kept constantly changing goals and directions, which pretty much clocks to whenever some new leader convinced the tribe to go with his idea. I streamlined the story of their leadership changes a bit, but it happened quite a lot. And this outcome was the result of Nez Perce society and culture. Now, the structure of Nez Perce society was not wrong or bad. And the fact that there were so many brave and talented leaders in the tribe was a major boon in many situations. But it did hamstring their decision-making process throughout the war. After the war, though, Chief Joseph's exploitation of American ignorance about his people and his war was the real Nez Perce victory that enabled most of them to return to the Pacific Northwest. Famous for being a war chief when he wasn't, Chief Joseph's greatest successes were in peace. The Nez Perce Reservation currently occupies a big chunk of central Idaho, and the descendants of the Great Journey survivors still live there to this day. It's not much, a lot less than what they lost, but I guess it could have been worse. But I want to end today on a different note. Multiple times in today's episode, I pointed out how Americans in the 19th century were very good at saying one thing and doing another. Politicians admitted that the violation of Nez Perce treaties was illegal, yet they continued to violate them. Army officers had more sympathy for the Indians than basically any other group of white men, yet they just shrugged their shoulders and did their jobs. Joseph and the Nez Perce became national icons after the war, and yet this never extended to honoring their treaties or treating them like equal citizens. So what gives? What is with all this hypocrisy? Well, throughout the 19th century, there's a common thread in the writings and speeches of most white Americans— 
the idea that the destruction of the Indian way of life was inevitable. It was a foregone conclusion. It was a tragedy, a bad thing, a great crime, but it was also unstoppable. And once you had that idea, once you had this belief, then anything you did to bring it about was okay. Especially when you could lie to yourself and say it was for the greater good of the Indians. Now before you jump up and say, James, you can't judge the past by our standards, I'm not. I'm judging them by their standards. It is clear that the people who persecuted the Nez Perce felt guilty about it and knew it was wrong, based on everything they wrote and said, but that never stopped them. They were able to comfort themselves by telling a convenient lie that it would have happened anyway. It made the impact of what they were doing easier to swallow. Was the destruction of the American Indian unstoppable? Was this cultural genocide inevitable? No. No, it wasn't. There wasn't some invisible force or some supernatural destiny that drove the Indians from their land and forced them onto reservations. People did that. Millions of Americans, from the men in Washington to the prospectors who violated Nez Perce territory to the soldiers who forced them onto the reservation, made the conscious decision to participate in the destruction of the Indian way of life because it was convenient, because it was easier. Just because everyone did it didn't mean it wasn't wrong. I'm not going to pull some ham-fisted move here where I bring modern political issues into this. That would be dumb. I'm not going to do that. But I do encourage you today to ask yourself, are we telling ourselves any sweet little lies to cover up something we know is wrong? Are we sad about some great tragedy that we could be doing more to prevent? If your answer is yes, and honestly, I know mine is, then maybe we can come a little bit closer to understanding why what happened happened to the Nez Perce. Because we as a country might have changed less than we think. Hey, thanks a bunch for listening to me today. I hope that the story was compelling and maybe you learned something that you didn't know before. I know I learned a lot doing my research for this episode. I continue to appreciate your support and feedback as I get this podcast rolling. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends about it. If you don't like it, tell your enemies. If you want to read some of my writings on the other American Indian wars, or just check out another bunch of my ramblings, you can go to my website and leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to support in any other way, you can find a donate button there as well. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod. You can email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words or even harsh words. I'll take those too. I'm not perfect. So if you've got advice, I would love to hear it. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Also pack your bags because next week we're going to Russia at the height of World War I. We're going to meet some incredible women who will buck the gender roles of the age and take up arms for the glory of their motherland by joining the Women's Battalion of Death. Hope to see you next week on Unknown Soldiers.